Hey, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you. I hope that it inspires you. And I hope that it causes you to dive deeper into God's word. I also hope that you have some community around you that you can talk through some of these things with. Now, I want to remind you that we are in the middle of our year in the story, which is really this deep dive into God's great story and our place in it. If you'd like more information about that or more information about our community here at Restore, you can get that on our website at restoreaustin.org. We'd really love to see you soon. Thanks for listening. Uh, hey, uh, real quickly, I just, you know, this happened last week and I thought it was really great. Um, I'd love to just say thank you to the band for leading us in worship. I'd love to give them a hand because they are awesome. You guys, you guys, I mean, obviously I'm the worship pastor, so it's like kind of in me to, to do that, but... They actually, uh, you may not know it, but the, the, the worship band is almost all volunteers, and they put in probably the most time, you know, outside of Sunday, learning songs. We have two different practices, and so I just, you know, I don't want to just build them up, but I want to edify and, and, and really just say that God is doing awesome things, and they put a lot of hard work to see the church come together and worship. So I love them. Thank you to them, especially Joe and Taylor for leading us this morning. They are doing my job so that I can do Zach's. <laughs> Preaching jokes are great. So um, this morning, if you guys uh, actually commented on my shirt choice, it's a pretty cool shirt. I like this shirt, but uh, I had a few comments because uh, if you don't know me, I really don't ever wear graphic tees, like at all. Actually, someone was like, you look different. It was just my shirt, which I find funny, you know. Uh, and I've got all the Restore shirts. I think there's about five of them. And... Um, I usually kind of reserve them for what I use to, like, work in the yard or if I know I'm not going to leave the house or if I don't have anything clean, you know. It's just kind of the last thing in there. And uh, my problem is not really the shirt itself. You know, these are, like, really soft, you know. How many of you guys have one of these? Uh, yeah, they're, they're great shirts. Um, it's really just that I don't like being a billboard, you know. Uh, is there anybody else like that? Anybody else don't like graphic tees? Yeah? Okay, a couple of you. I don't have any hate for anybody that, uh, you know, does like graphic tees. I mean, I've already seen a few of you already. <laughs> and uh, you know, your shirt's really cool. It really is. It's cool, and I'm glad, I'm glad that you like it. Um, so by show, show of hands, how many actually recognize this shirt? Specifically, this one is the first one that Restore ever printed. It was actually before we even launched. So it's kind of, you know, sentimental to me. Um, and by show of hands, again, how many of you guys recognize this shirt? Yeah, yeah, recognize it. I mean, I think it's, that's pretty much everybody, right? Um, I learned this week that, uh, you know, this is pretty iconic. It's, uh, it's actually considered to be the most iconic printed graphic tee ever. Um, it was created in the 1970s, excuse me, <clears throat> to uh, try to boost the economy of New York as they were actually nearing bankruptcy. Um, and like I said, I think everybody pretty much knows it, and there's even like you know, everybody's kind of version of it, their spoof of it. You know, I was actually going to get an I Love Texas shirt, but I figured I'd just never wear it. So, um, so like I said, I don't really like displaying anything on my clothing, but I do get that we kind of all do it, you know, to some varying degree. And I used to wear, like, band shirts, you know. Or my favorite thing to do is actually go to, like, a thrift store and buy, like, that, that one shirt that just screamed, I got this at a thrift store, you know? Do you guys have those, those shirts? I've got a few of them, so. Um, but my, my point is, is this, that um, we, we pick our clothing, we pick what we wear 
uh, because of how we value it, right? Like maybe it's just the fit or something like that that we just absolutely love, or maybe it's the, the band or the church, am I right, uh, that we love. But we, we place a value on it, and so we wear it. Um, and with like the I Love New York shirt, we, we want other people to know about the things that we love, the things that we feel are worthy of our love and our attention. You could even say, a little bit of a stretch, but it's a form of worship. And I say we worship because we're assigning some sort of worth to it. Um, and that's, that, that's actually where we get the word worship from. It's from the Old English, worth-ship. We all ascribe some kind of value to the things in our life that are worthy of our devotion and our enjoyment. And we really want others to know how great it is, too. And uh, I think none of us, no matter how hard we try, are actually really free from this disposition to worship. And even uh, there's a novelist, and he's an atheist. Uh, his name is David Foster Wallace. And he said this, There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we have is what to worship. You know, and I think most of us fall into kind of, you know, worshiping one or a few categories of things. We kind of worship a deity, right? We worship like material things or power or just our own selves. And I bet we can all probably say we've held some kind of allegiance to a combination of one or all of these things at some point in our lives. And so um, with that, I don't think it's possible to talk about worship without also talking about relationship. There's no way to worship something without actually knowing what that thing is. You know, you can't say you love New York if you don't know what New York is, all right? And so the narrative of the Bible is kind of this huge picture of worship and relationship and how those two things go together. So this morning, I want to touch on two kind of big themes that we see in worship, particularly in the Old Testament. And then I want to focus in on Jesus' words in the New Testament. And they're specifically about the orientation of our relationships and then about God's presence, which is so important. Now, the Old Testament is uh, pretty long. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, you know, in order to not make it like a three-hour seminar, I'm going to kind of just give this broad, sweeping look and kind of zero in on a few passages, excuse me, that um, I think are pretty key to the idea of worship. And then uh, I want to focus in on the Gospel of John. Sound good? Cool. So, beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God creates this, this both physical and spiritual world. And he's established as this one creator God that sustains both, the, both worlds, the, the physical and the spiritual. And he's the only God. And he's the only one that comes close to any other spiritual, or no other spiritual deity comes close to him. And he creates humanity. He creates us as sort of this crown jewel of his creation. And the Bible tells us that God and man coexisted together in the garden and that all of man's needs were met. Uh, they were in what we call a right relationship together. But man fractured that relationship by seeking to become like God, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their decision uh, to eat the fruit that was forbidden was motivated by this desire to elevate themselves to a level of God. And that, that right there becomes the main problem that we see throughout all of history. Is, is God the one that we should worship or 
Should I really just be able to do what I want and therefore be the own object of my worship? And so in the Bible, the first time we actually see the word worship comes from uh, the life of Abraham. Um, So quick summary of, of Abraham's life. God promises to bless him and to make him into a great nation, and that nation will bless the entire world. Uh, and Abraham gets to this place where he's like, hey, God, I, you know, this is a great blessing, but I don't have a son. No one's going to carry on this legacy. How on earth is this going to happen? And so God gives him a son, and he, uh, you know, a lot of details and a lot of drama here, but he, he gives him this miraculous son that is um, basically showing that God is the only one who is going to uh, do what God wants in his life. And so he gives him this son, this promised son, and, and then one day God says, hey, I want you to take that son, and I want you to offer him to me. I want you to sacrifice him on the altar to me. And, I, you know, no doubt that is just a terrifying request. I honestly, I, I don't even know if I would pass that. Um, and Genesis tells us that as Abraham and his son and the people that are with him are, are, you know, go up to the mountain, he tells the people that are with him, hey, you guys stay here, watch the donkeys, and the boy and I will actually go up and worship. Fascinating word to use there. And an angel actually stops Abraham, like just right as, about, as he's about to kill Isaac. And he says, hey, don't hurt him. For now I know that you fear God. Fear is another big word that's used a lot in the Old Testament for worship. And it's not like this trembling, afraid fear. It's this respect and um, honoring fear. And he says, you, won't, uh, you, you, you fear God and you won't withhold the son that I promised uh, from me. So, you know, this, this idea is not that Abraham is, is, tr- is trying to appease this bloodthirsty child sacrificing God, which, believe it or not, was actually common practice uh, in the ancient Near East at the time. But he was being tested to see if there was anything that was worth more to him than God, if he had placed more value in his son than he had placed in God. Would he take the son that God gave him and elevate him? And so it's a matter of submission to what God says to do in the ordering of his relationships. And so much later, we have another picture of the Hebrews being freed from slavery from Egypt. And God says, okay, I want to take you. I'm going to show you all these miracles. And I want you to become my covenant people, which is a a huge new thing from God. It's, It's this kind of next chapter in the history of Israel where God says, you are going to become my people. So he sends Moses up to the mountain to make a deal. And he says this in Exodus 19, verse 4, verse on the screen. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the people on earth belong to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of God. So, you know, those are are big words. God's saying, I want to separate you out from all of the other people on earth. He's trying to establish this permanent relation with them. And all they have to do is keep his commandments and obey him. Uh, So they agree to this proposition from God, and then um, Moses gives them the Ten Commandments, and and, uh, they enter this covenant. But as soon as Moses comes down off the mountain, they are worshiping another false idol. 
see, what happened was Moses was on the mountain for so long that they were like, you know, Moses might be dead. God maybe killed him. Maybe God's not even with us. Let's just make our own gods. And so God, after Moses comes down, is having none of it. And he tells Moses, you know what? Let's just wipe them out. I'll start over with you. We'll just, we'll get rid of them and you can do this on your own. I can do this through you. Um, and so God, God, you know, Moses pleads to God to save them. And uh, God reveals something very, very interesting about his character as he responds to Moses. Let's, let's take a look at it. Exodus 34. Moses immediately threw himself to the ground and worshiped. And he said, O oh Lord, if it is true that I have found favor with you, then please travel with us. Yes, this is a stubborn and rebellious people, but please forgive our iniquity and our sins. Claim us as your own special possession. And the Lord replied, listen, I am making a covenant with you in the presence of all your people. I will perform miracles that have never been performed anywhere in the earth or in any nation. And all the people around you will see the power of the Lord, the awesome power I will display for you. But listen carefully to everything I command you today. Then I will go ahead of you and drive out the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, which are the enemies of God's people at this time. Excuse me. So be, be, be very careful then. Never to make a treaty with the people who live in the land where you are going. This is really important. If you do, you will follow their evil ways and be trapped. Instead, you must break down their pagan altars, smash their sacred pillars, and cut down their Asherah poles. You must worship no other gods for the Lord, whose very name is Jealous, is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. God, whose very name is Jealous. So God really doesn't like for his people to worship other gods. Um, he's even commanding them not to turn to make any treaties with other nations because those nations are just going to lead them astray. God's jealous for his people. Jealous for their attention, their, their affection, their devotion. And he's seeking to become their king to, to, to establish a theocracy where he is their leader. Um, God promises to Israel that um, at the end of their deal, they will be his treasured people and all the nations will see the power of God. So that first big theme that we see in the Old Testament is having a right relationship with God, putting God in his rightful place as, as first and foremost. Now, the other big theme that we see in the Old Testament is this idea of God's presence with his people. And the common belief throughout the ancient Near East at the time was that if a God was present with the people, that they would have victory in battle, that they would have all the crops and food and water that they'd ever need, uh, fertility, they would have everything that they need and they would be blessed by the God. If the God wasn't with them, they would, you know, offer sacrifices to try to get back into uh, God's, uh, a God's good graces and so the God would come back to them. Um, and so God's presence, once the covenant is established, is set up in this big tent called the tabernacle. Have you heard the tabernacle before? It's essentially just this robust meeting place where God says he will dwell. And it's a huge deal to um, the Israelites because it's this evidence that they are in right standing with God and that he is with them. 
So if they obey God's commandments to keep his covenant, he will be with them. He will dwell with them. And his presence means that they are victorious and they are safe. And so as time goes by, Israel and God kind of communicate in this tabernacle. And um, it's, you know, a, a crazy, amazing drama uh, in the Old Testament that's, uh, I mean, there's more drama than like the Lord of the Rings. It's just crazy how the, the plot twists go back and forth. And, you know, a long time goes by. And then eventually um, the Israelites demand for a king. They demand to be ruled by someone like the other nations around them are ruled by somebody. And God says, look, if you really want a king, okay, but I know what's going to happen to you. This king is going to lead you astray and lead you away from me to follow other gods. And with that knowledge, the people still just say, you know, we really just would like a king. We'd like a ruler here on the ground to rule over us. And so God is, is grieved over this, but he, he gives it to them. And over the next few centuries, Israel's worship really ebbs and flows from their creator God, Yahweh, to many other gods like the surround, in the surrounding nations. Uh, and God really you know, leads them through um, terrifying experiences because of how they oriented their relationship with him. If they chose to follow other gods, he said, fine, follow them. They will not save you from your enemies. And they don't. And there's this crazy cycle over and over again of God letting them be taken by their enemies and then uh, 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 pulled into slavery, into exile, and then being freed again because they returned to God and then over and over again by different empires throughout uh, the world. And so eventually what happens is the Romans come in. And now if you know anything about history, Romans were like the big bad wolf at the time. And they just spanked everybody, had the largest empire at the time ever. And so uh, Jesus shows up. When Israel is stuck under this Roman occupation, and the, uh, at, at the time they had no prophet, they had no king. So there's all these little fractions of, of little Jewish like huddles that were essentially saying, okay, we gotta, we got to reinstate this covenant. we got to do this all over again so we can finally have God's presence with us again. And so if you've heard of terms like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, on and on it goes, there are all these little fractions of, of Jews that are trying to basically bring back, restore the order um, of God's covenant. But there's no one unifying them all. There's no prophet and there's no king. So everyone's trying to just do their best, but nobody's really on the same page and how to do that. And so Jesus comes in at this point, and we're going to look at some of his words in John 4 to the woman at the well. So there's a whole, whole chapter here. So buckle up with me. Please read along. It's awesome. Chapter 4. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptizing and making more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize them. His disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. So pause there for a second. So truth be told, Jesus didn't actually have to go through Samaria. In fact, many of the Jewish leaders at the time really chose to go around Samaria um, on this big highway, uh, essentially so they wouldn't have to interact with the Samaritans at all. Um, Jews really hated Samaritans. Um, they saw them as this, like, pollution in their society. And um, 
essentially, um, they were just a kind of a mixed blood race of Jews that um, they saw as keeping their nation from being holy. And yes, it is pretty much racism, okay? So Jesus enters into this tension. He doesn't avoid it and go around. He has a statement to make by going into it. We'll pick it up in verse 5. Eventually, he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Now the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with the Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And beside, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Okay, so um, I don't know about you, but I detect a little sass there. Uh, And it is there. Um, uh, The woman at the well is pressing Jesus. He's essentially using his Jewishness to try to um, combat him. You know, are you greater than Jacob? If you don't know who Jacob is, he's actually the son of Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is the son of Abraham, who we talked about earlier. So he's a very important person to the Jews. And so Jesus, you know, totally unfazed, just continues. Verse 13, Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. So she gives in. She's like, all right, cool. I'm, I'm down for this water. Who likes to come and draw water? You know, it's noon. It's hot outside. Let's see this water. And she's probably there, if you didn't know. Um, and she said she's there at noon. And she's probably there because of what Jesus is about to expose in this next part. Verse 16, go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I do not have a husband, the woman replied. And Jesus said, you're right. You don't have a husband for you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man that you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? Well, we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped. So pro tip here, um, if somebody ever calls out your most egregious, you know, deepest, darkest sin, just change the subject. You know, just go ahead and do it. It's totally fine. It's here in the Bible, so why not, you know? (laughs) So she asks, where is the right place to worship? Settle this for me. Verse 21, Jesus replied, Believe me, dear dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. 
The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Okay, so there's a lot packed in here. And Jesus tells her, look, you know, your question's kind of invalid. Because one day, and this is the day, what you're asking isn't going to matter at all. Now, it's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. So, if we look back, we have this entire history of the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes. And, and Jesus, if, if, if you're not familiar, we believe he is God. And other places in the New Testament say that he is the image of this invisible God. And that he is the word of God come to dwell among man. Very important, very reliable source to show us God. And he says, now that my people will worship in spirit and in truth. So the big question then naturally is, what does that mean? What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? And if you're like me, I think it sounds kind of cryptic and uh, high and mighty, but Jesus actually tells us what he means very clearly in a few other passages. So if you're up for it, let's look, for, look at him. John chapter 7 says this, On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered his glory. So thankfully, Jesus gives us this picture of what it means to worship in spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit given to us when Jesus ascended into heaven. And later, Jesus tells the disciples some more about the Spirit in John 14. He says, If you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. So there's this fascinating connection between the Spirit and the truth. And and the Spirit of God is what Jesus said in John chapter 7, is river of living water. And he's an advocate. And that, that term advocate uh, means both a, um, a legal advocate, like standing in court, but it also means a comforter and an encourager, someone who is present with you. It is Jesus' version of the tabernacle. It is God's presence with us. Jesus is laying this new foundation of dependence on God's spirit to know truth. You hear that? Jesus is calling us to depend on the spirit to know what truth is. And to see Jesus as our God. To have our eyes open that he is the Messiah, the Savior, and that belief in him means we have salvation and acceptance in his kingdom and his continual presence by his spirit. So looking back to the woman's question about where they should worship, at the time worship God meant to go to the temple and to offer what's called sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, uh, to be more specific. And the animal sacrifice was the system that was set up 
uh, to take the sin of people and place it on the sin of an animal that is sacrificed to God. And it's called atonement. If you've ever heard of that before. And it's um, this very, very big uh, system and really kind of complex system um, that God has established to wipe away the sin of his people. And the problem, about, uh, the problem with this system was that it, it was not final. Uh, they had to return consistently year after year and sometimes more often uh, to offer sacrifices, to be atoned for their sin so that they may be in right standing and right relationship with God. Um, and there was no way to restore the relationship that God had with his people without addressing the sin because God is, is holy. He is completely without sin and man is like on the other side of that spectrum. No matter how hard we try, we can't be freed from the sin on our own. So there's really no way for those two things to be together without something giving. And so that's what the system was all about, the sacrificial system. So the people went up, up to the temples uh, to to worship. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and, and earlier in the Gospel of John, uh, John the Baptist actually calls God the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. We actually sang some of those words earlier that He has come, He has died in my place to take my sin away. And so there's this new paradigm. That happens when it comes to worship. When Jesus enters, it's no longer about obeying the commandments per se. It's about trusting that Jesus is our lamb that atones for our sins. He died in our place so that we might have an eternal communion with God. So worshiping in, in truth means that we worship the way God intends with what he provides in Jesus. And I love how New Testament scholar D.A. Carson puts it so simply. He says this, To worship God in spirit and truth is first and foremost a way of saying that we must worship God by means of Christ. In him the reality has dawned and the shadows are being swept away. I love that the reality is dawning like a sun over the horizon and our sin is being washed away like the darkness. What the woman at the well was seeking and what all of humanity is seeking is a right relationship with God. Free from guilt, free from shame, or this continuous cycle of fear of whether or not God's angry at me and what I have to do to get into his good graces again. Anybody ever feel like that? I do. Free from the bondage of sin and evil. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross breaks that power of sin. It has a hold on us. It breaks the power of death and restores a right relationship between God and man. Listen, it is the entire um, desire of the Old Testament to be in right standing with God. So then, like I said earlier, if the choice that we all have as humans is... Um, what to worship, because we all do. Maybe it's whom do we worship, and are they worthy of it? Is there anything in our lives that can bring us 
what we need the way Jesus can. Anything at all. Does anything come close at all? I think no. No matter how hard I try, my sin still gets me. And even if I wasn't aware of it, it would still separate me from God. And I think that's the case for all of us. But thankfully, we have Jesus who has come to make a way for each of us to be in a right relationship with him. Uh, Jesus' words to the woman uh, imply that there is a way to worship that is both uh, correct and incorrect. And perhaps the, the falsehood, the incorrect way is to worship ourselves, to believe that we are ultimate in this world. And really to believe that there's something else that can satisfy our souls apart from God. We worship God in spirit and in truth by believing in Jesus and believing that he is of utmost importance. He is the only relationship that really matters. Jesus even said, and it's tough to hear, but he said, if you don't hate your father or mother, you are not worthy of me. Which is just mind-boggling to me. The Jesus who says we should love each other as much as we love ourselves says that. And the truth is he's not saying that we should go and start hating. He's saying that every other relationship in this world will fail, will die, but I never will. My love for you is unending. It cannot be changed. It cannot be taken away. And this is what it means to believe in God and worship him in spirit and in truth. And so I want to end this morning just posing that question to you. Is the God that you worship worthy of it? And how are you responding to how you should worship him? Um, Like I said, this whole Bible is a picture of how we worship and how we relate to God and to each other. And in the book of Revelation, the last book, we have this beautiful picture of God restoring the relationship between God and man Ultimately, And I want to read it to us and just let it encourage us. Because I know uh, if you haven't yet faced, you will face a very difficult time in your life. But we have this hope in Jesus that he is making all things new. Amen? Let's read it. Revelation 21. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home now is among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said this, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to all who are thirsty I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. And pray for us. Lord, I thank you that, God, you have the end of the story already mapped out, the end of the future. God, in your hands. God, that there is no evil, there is no sin. God, there is nothing 
God, that can pull us away from you, from those of us who just call on your name. God, who believe that you are the Messiah, that you are our God, that you are the one who is worthy of our worship. God, would you help us to understand, God, how we worship other things. Help us to understand how we place value on our relationships around us. And God, help us to depend on you uh, for our freedom from sin. God, to trust that we don't have to white-knuckle this life to be better, but that your spirit has already given us life eternally. God, I thank you that you have restored in us your church, not just here in this room, but all over the world and across all of time. You have restored relationship between you and all of your creation. God, we want to sing together, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.